to Pod 49, a Lodge 49 fan conversation podcast. This is another one in our series of very special episodes where we talk to the crew and cast of Lodge 49. Today, Bart and I get to talk to music supervisor Thomas Patterson, where we go deep on his process about how he chooses the needle drops for Pod 49. And we have a very special guest. Uh, We probably will have it in the show notes, but I'm not going to spoil it here for you. If you don't see the show notes, if you jump over the title, I want you to be as pleasantly and wonderfully surprised as we were when the guest breaks in. Bart, any thoughts uh, to prepare people for our interview with Thomas Patterson? Uh, yeah, you know, I just wanted to say that I, um, I, I really liked the show when I first saw it, but it was the music that kind of hooked me. I thought, um, so I knew I liked the show, but I really loved the music, and um, so I was very excited to get the chance to chat with the guy that makes it all happen. Um, and I was thinking, if um, Lodge Forty Nine was a band, Chris, who do you think it would be? Um, I'm thinking maybe. Big Star? Yeah, that's interesting. I was thinking Big Star earlier when we interviewed David Urie because there was that, this idea that like later on it would be appreciated. And in my head, I thought about Big Star in that context. Critically acclaimed, you know, fan, like a very loyal fan base uh, that's, um, you know, ravenous fan base, critically acclaimed, but maybe not the commercial uh, success of uh, other lesser bands or lesser shows. For, so from that vantage point, yes, and I'd already thought of I'd already that had already kind of come to my head. Music, if you think of like the kind of musical equivalent, that's a, that's a that's a super interesting one. I'd have to think about that. I don't think I have a answer off off the cuff of what like musically band they would be. But I like Big Star as the as the narrative. One thing that kind of blew my mind that Thomas Patterson told us, and is another ringing endorsement for why. We need a season three, at least a season three of Pod Forty Nine. Was that he said that he had playlists that he had created for each of the major characters to kind of get himself around their characters and thinking about how to choose music. And he said, if there's a season three, he will post those character-specific playlists somewhere as part of the promo for season three. And who would not want to listen to like? Thomas Patterson's Liz 40 song playlist. That would be amazing. So uh, I really want that to come to fruition. Sign me up. Subscribe, subscribe. All right. So here is our discussion with Thomas Patterson, music supervisor, needle drop connoisseur for pod 49 and a very special guest at the end for bonus interview content. Enjoy. Well, hello. We're here with Tom Patterson uh, as a very special guest to Pod 49. First of all, Tom, just a huge thank you. We're just such giant fans of the show and really giant fans of, of the music on the show, both you and Andrew Carroll. But um, we follow each week's playlist like, you know, like some kind of a, a gift from the music god. So thanks for joining us. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here and I'm glad you're enjoying the show. How did you wind up on a show, on, on doing the music for Live 49? Can you just give us a little bit of that story? Uh, yeah. Um, a long story short, I've known Jim for, for a long time. We actually, I, I discussed it as well, but we actually met on my 21st birthday when I was holidaying in L.A. And we've been friends for many years. We've exchanged mixtapes, that kind of stuff. 
we've actually written together in the past. You know, we wrote a screenplay a long time ago together, a couple actually. Uh, and we used to be roommates once upon a time. And my work has taken me in a different direction to Jim. Jim was getting into fiction writing, short stories, and I was getting into music work. So I do, um, I've been a journalist Music journalist uh, in here in Britain, in London, where I live, where I'm speaking to you from. I'm a contributing editor to a magazine called Shindig. And I've become a music consultant for music documentaries and programs like that over here and some for the um, uh, U.S. market. And uh, it was suggested I might be interested in getting involved in doing music supervision for Lodge 49. And it's my first American TV show. And there was a competition. It wasn't just sort of handed to me. I had to come up with a, a game plan of how I wanted it to sound. There were other, you know, much bigger names in the picture than I was. But uh, God bless a and for believing in me and giving me a chance. And here we are at the end of the second season. Does that work out in their favor, for sure? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, and it has been discussed a little bit before generally. Um, I think Peter Ocko, who I know you've just spoken to, I believe, who's the showrunner of the show, He's vastly experienced, and he's worked with a lot of people on many, many shows. And what I think he quite enjoyed about Lodge 49 is that a, quite a lot of the people working on it is sometimes they're like first big U.S. show. You know, it's Jim's first show. It's um, Sonia Cassidy's first American TV show. So he, he quite liked, I think, to an extent, that sort of um, bringing the novices and see what they can do. There's like a special magic that's created from people who are due to the experience but rather than like um, Hollywood mainstays. Well, I think certainly in terms of the music supervision, it allowed me a free to blunder around uh, that uh, someone who's more experienced with US TV wouldn't have done. So, you know, uh, especially in season one, we used a lot of tracks that, you know, are getting advice from people that, you know, don't even bother trying to get that. It's unclearable, that record label's gone, but because... <laughs> Because I was being a kind of like a, 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 a novice idiot. I was like, no, I'll do it. And, you know, expending a lot of work, but we got a lot of really weird tracks that way. When you, when you, maybe even preparing to kind of apply for the job, so to speak, but then especially after you, after you got the gig, what was your philosophy about putting the music together? How did you start to think creatively about what you wanted to build with, with the songs and the kind of musical personality of the show? I came up with, I, I've described it before, I, I came up with what I can only really describe as sort of a manifesto. It's sort of how I envisioned the music sounding. I'd only had, I think, maybe the first three scripts so far, maybe four. And within that, Jim, in, in fact, in, in the whole of season one, I think Jim had included three or four songs into the script. So uh, The Lonely Surfer was written in at the beginning of episode two. The Squire's going all the way that closes out episode 10 was always in there. Um, and then I think there were a couple that we didn't end up using. There was a Catano Veloso song in 10 that didn't go in in the end. But beyond that, it was sort of an open field. And for my mind, just reading it, it was the themes of alchemy and that kind of hazy SoCal sun lend itself to the, the kind of neo-psychedelic sound we've gone for. Um, as you've noticed, obviously, we use a lot of broadcast, uh, and that comes via Jim, and broadcast of one of Jim's favorite bands. He's, I mean, I've loved broadcast, too. I wrote a huge piece about them for Shindig about six years ago now. Uh, 
So I considered them as a sort of building block which I could then expand upon. And Lilies are another one of Jim's favorite bands. So they were always going to sort of be in the mix, even though they weren't in the script. And then I brought sort of the sound carriers on board. And from there, you know, the sound of the world uh, kind of evolved. Uh, and I'm also, you know, I'm a big crate digging music geek. So I've got hundreds of thousands of dusty old seven inches, a lot of which have never been digitized from that era. So we started playing around from the, from the 60s sort of era that are, these newer bands were informed by. So we use a lot of that stuff. And that sort of came together. But yeah, it was, it really was a mixture of the SoCal mon- mundanity meets the underlying magic of the show. Those must have been some awesome record parties then when you were going through your seven-inch collection to see what might work. Yeah, I mean, I went a bit mad. And I have to say, I, I, I send a huge love and respect to our editors, um, Ivan and Susan and Jennifer and Chris McCaleb from season one. Because uh, what happens is I dumped just thousands of songs on them. I was like, you know, here, go, go play with these when you're editing. And I think at the end, they were like, oh, leave me alone. There's too much music. Uh, but some of the great stuff that's in the show is thanks to them listening to the uh, track listings I was curating and going, actually, this track here might work really well over here. I mean, it really is a true collaboration in that sense. Yeah, that's interesting. I noticed that uh, at one point in the season, I think you tweeted out that there was um, that you just kind of finalized the music for, you know, we were on episode two or something and you were talking about maybe episode eight or nine, something like towards the end of the season. And I was kind of struck by that because I didn't realize that it was, I mean, I guess from my assumption that it would be, everything was sort of wrapped up and in a can and ready to just sort of, uh, you know, show the audiences. But you guys are actually kind of, do you sort of tweak it a little bit as you go along or? Uh, Well, season two is very different to season one in that season one, we had a luxurious amount of time to get the show ready. It was all, season one was all put out in one go. So you could download all 10 episodes immediately. And that's how it ended up on Amazon Prime. But it had been filmed long before and we actually had, you know, a good, I can't remember how many months, but a nice good few months to sort of look at the overall arc of the season. And even though we were sort of doing each week by week, if there were any issues, we could have gone back and tweaked. I don't think in the end we needed to, but you, it gave me more time for season one to, you know, clear some of the weirdo tracks that we use and track down the long lost songwriters that we needed to do. Season two, there was a lot less lead time. You know, it's, you know, it's the second album. It's the difficult second album where <laughs> your expectations are against you. You got, you got a year to get everything done. So <laughs> this time we really were just like, sort of up against it quite a lot of the time and though a lot of stuff was in mind uh, there was a lot of chopping and changing and really we couldn't go back once we'd locked an episode because it was it was going to air fairly soon uh but I, I think it and then that meant for season two there were a lot of tracks that we wanted and we couldn't clear in time or they would turn out they were going to be too expensive or whatever reason, and we came up with a, an alternative. And I'd always have like two or three alternatives for any song we wanted. But looking back at it now, I think it made for some interesting uh, sounds that we weren't necessarily going for, but uh, hopefully people don't notice and actually enjoy our second choices just as much as what we might have uh, chosen as our first. 
And by the way, I won't tell you what our other tracks were that were second choices in case they offend any artists. <laughs> no, no worries. No names need to be uh, revealed. One thing I've really enjoyed about the music is that you got your classics, you know, everything from like kind of Fairport Convention and, you know, the, the English folk stuff and, you know, American blues, jazz and R&B, especially for the flashback sequences. But then... And then there's that sort of what you were saying, that gym era, that kind of indie rock era. But you've also gone out and, and sort of been A&R guy to a certain degree where you brought in a couple of younger art, artists into here and given them some exposure or gone to bands like the Lilies and even the Sound Carriers and kind of cajoled them back into recording to some degree. Can you talk a little bit about the? Do I have that accurate? Have you been a little bit of an A and R man to get some of these songs recorded? Uh, to, to an extent, yeah. I mean, with the with the sound carriers and lilies, uh, they gave us brand new songs, and it wasn't so much that I cajoled them. I just think, uh, well, with the sound carriers, it was a little bit more kind of like, hey, they they came back together for the show, as it were. They they hadn't broken up, but they weren't recording anymore and they weren't, had, didn't have any firm plans in the future and then I got in touch with them about season one and that got them back together and before Andrew Carroll our amazing composer came on board there was talk of them perhaps scoring the show uh, and it, it, it kind of wouldn't have worked uh, for a start we need the composer to be in LA I'm, I'm working out of London so we needed someone on the ground out in LA where the production is uh, and they they live in Nottingham and all over different places in the UK. But that then gave us the idea of using a lot of the sound carriers throughout season one. And the plan initially was to have a different sound carriers track in each episode. But in the end, I think we used seven in season one, maybe it was eight, I can't quite remember. But that sort of got them back together and playing, and they recorded uh, a demo for a theme tune for the show, which we didn't end up using, but they turned into a single, which I put out with the help of uh, Shindy magazine. And I also put on after season one, a show that they played last December. And they played with Gloria, the French band, who we ended up using in season two. And so it was a limited seven inch we pressed up, which was one side was the sound carriers and the other side was Gloria. And because they're now sort of back, they're recording all the time and they're working on this fourth album. So as we were putting together season two, they were just sending me tracks that they were working on. Uh, and I was going, well, this is amazing. You know, can we use it in the show? It's going in your fourth album. So that's sort of how that happened. And then they gave us that incredible uh, cover of uh, The Seven Seal as well, which is in the show. They also gave us and we couldn't use it and I'm I'm bummed out about it but hopefully it'll come out they gave us a terrific cover of We Have All the Time in the World the um, Louis Armstrong song that's in a, On Her Majesty's Secret Service but the James Bond people at Sony wouldn't let us use it in case they people confuse Lodge 49 with James Bond or something like that <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean I literally had to write to the James Bond people and go uh by the way, actually, I didn't write it. Uh, Linda Osha, who I work with, who does uh, helps out with all the clearances, uh, she wrote to them to, to let them know that, uh, yes, no, we just want to express we're not making fun of James Bond. There won't be any stunts. There won't be any action. This is Lodge 49, but it was still a no in the end. Um, no, a and 
Yeah, I know. And and that goes to the same with the with lilies. I mean, it's really there's not much to tell other than uh, we use lilies in season one. I got in touch with Kurt to clear some of the songs. We chat a lot. I said, you know, if you've ever got anything new, send it our way. Lo and behold, he gifts us with the most perfect song for the show, and and it's in there. I mean, it really is that simple. Yeah, there's a magical quality to both watching the show and it seems like the creation of the show um, that all came together pretty well. So that it's very fitting, I think, that the the music is, is the same. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I... No, sorry, after you. But, no, I was just going to say, like, the alchemy of the show is, like, sort of come together very nicely. I, I don't know. Everything kind of matches. Yeah, I mean, for season one, and I, I don't know if that many people noticed it, but I was trying to get a lot of songs about gold and alchemy into the show, and a lot of the bands have sort of medieval themed names. So, like, there's the Squires and the Baron Four, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And with season two, we were up against it a bit more, so I couldn't be quite as playful. But there are still some hidden trees for people who analyze some of the songs. The only thing I wasn't able to get into season two until the final episode is a, is a fire song, a proper song about fire. Uh, and, the, and, and unfortunately, it's actually just a library track that's playing on the background of the lodge called There's a Fire Burning, which if you really listen out, you might be able to hear. But I don't tend to kind of like list those deep library background tracks on um, websites like TuneFind, but it's in there. So I, I got one in at least. <laughs> you, you earlier mentioned working with Andrew Carroll, and we talked a little bit to, to Jim and Peter about that it's rare that you see a show where the, the original score and then the original songs work so well together, and you know it, it almost feels like a collaboration between between those two sort of ways to put music into television or, or a movie. Can you talk a little bit about working with Andrew? Absolutely. Um, Andrew is brilliant. He's an absolute genius. And uh, I didn't discover him. He came into the picture by Andy Sierra, who was the writer's assistant for season one, who's now, uh, I think he wrote one of the episodes for two and is now his writing career has gone stratospheric. Uh, and he was an old buddy of Andrew's from the LA music scene, both in bands. Andrew was in his band, The Lonely Wild. And when we first did season one, we kind of like were discussing whether we needed a composer at all. We, uh, AMC have a deal with a couple of production uh, libraries uh, for cheap music and BMG library, production music also will write us custom cues. And indeed, it was the BMG library that wrote the Don Fab tracks you hear in season one, the surf tracks. So we were thinking, you know, we could do needle drops and then use them and see where we are. And we did the first episode entirely needle drops, and I went and priced it up, and it was basically half our budget for the entire season. So <laughs> this isn't, this isn't going to work. Um, so we put it out to tender, uh, and uh, I put it out to some composers I knew uh, in L.A. Again, we gave it to the sound carriers. Peter had a couple of people to try out, and uh, Andy said, can we try out? Andrew Carroll and we were like yeah absolutely uh, I, I had no problem with that and what I did was I we gave them a, a audition to write a theme tune and I wrote uh, a, I think it was a page long thing of what I wanted it to sound like I discussed it with Peter and Jim but it was very much I had this vision of uh, you know the, uh, the, the female vocals that slightly psychedelic thing I wanted the voice to have uh, I wanted the lodge to have its own voice and in my head, it was sort of that Elio Morricone, Edadel, also lyric that you hear in sort of old spaghetti westerns. 
And we got all these wonderful, they're all great, these um, uh, theme tune uh, submissions back. And I spoke to Andrew on the phone as well about it. I spoke to all of them. And they, gave, they sent me demos as we went along. And I said, no, try a little bit more of this or a little bit more of this. And a couple of people who sent in, they were very kind of quite straight. And I was going, no, go weirder, go weirder. But Andrew's one, he just got it. He nailed it. And I think it's because also uh, he was younger than a lot of the other composers and he knew a lot of the indie band references like broadcast that were, were mentioned in there. So he just sent that theme tune through and what you hear on the screen is pretty much that original demo. I, I mean, I think he went back and tweaked it a little bit. But from then on, you know, uh, we got him in and I think, as I was saying earlier about Peter being excited to work with novices, it was Andrew's first TV show. He'd done a couple of small indies and really, it was kind of like, you know, can we get away with this? Will it work? I'm in London. He's in L.A. Well, we gave him the first episode, and what came back was just absolutely brilliant. Uh, what did happen, I think, at the very beginning was we gave him the episode that was uh, completely scored with needle drops all the way through. And when I say needle drop, that's, that means a paid-for song uh, so by a band you've heard of. And I think that very first episode had... 15 songs in it maybe and it had things like Nick Drake and lots of big hitters and we gave it to him and said look we don't know what's coming in what's what's staying in what's coming out I think we had three that were definitely in but beyond that have a think and come up with what you think would play and he came back with stuff that didn't sound like the song that was in there but absolutely uh, hit the same function as it and from then on we knew we were flying and then you know for season one, we'd share ideas and backwards and forwards. I think in season two, I think we barely spoke during the um, actual demoing of it. All that would happen is every week we'd get together to watch an episode with needle drops that we'd chosen and score we'd written. And then that, and that'd be all of us. That would be Jim Peter, the editor, our, our sound editors. And we'd discuss whether certain cues worked or not. But really, I mean, you know... I'm, I'm left alone, he's left alone, and here we are. Here you are. Bart? Well, I think we know what uh, the sort of taste of the show, or like what the show would listen to as, uh, you know, if they had to make a demo tape and put it in their car. But what, do you have any ideas what you think the characters would listen to? Like, what does Dud listen to? I would, <laughs> I, when I put the thing together, I did put together playlists for all the characters, and some were a lot ah. easier than others. Ernie and Scott were, were pretty easy, but Dud and Liz were actually really quite hard. And yeah, I, thought, yeah, I thought so. Oh, no, sorry, no, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. You was, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, 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 please. No, after you. No, after you. I want to hear what you, you're going to say. Well, like, uh, for example, I, I don't know. There's something I feel very strong about is that Jeremy is a Blues Traveler fan and that Scott <laughs> loves the Eagles. <laughs> I mean, but Dud is not as easy to, to peg. Well, my my general guess was that Dud listens to his dad's old record collection, and Liz does to an extent yeah. as well. And because of what they look like, I think there is possibly some eagles in there, but I think it's Allman Brothers and bits and bobs like that, especially as he looks like it. Whereas Liz has a is a bit more uh, au with new music. You know, in season one, there's music playing in the background. She listens to Crank Bin, and season two, she's got a Lake Roof track playing in the car, which sort of, you know, fits with our general soundscape. But I figured she would probably listen to them anyway. 
but dad is the enigma music wise so i my my feeling is he listens to the classic rock that's in his dad's record collection i had i definitely was thinking classic rock as well it, you know it does play to dad too that he's kind of you know he's not as uh, critical in some ways and so he would probably go with the flow he's got a lot of uh, nostalgia for his dad and for his past life so yeah that's uh, that that matches about what i was thinking too but i did think he was kind of difficult to peg yeah, I mean, he's an easygoing guy, so he'll listen to whatever's playing. But I think that would be yeah. his go-to. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I said first. It's like whatever's on the radio, then does into it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I could sort of imagine him, you know, stumbling across a lockup with his dad's old possession that has some old records from the 70s, and he'd go by a Crosley player from somewhere and just sit around in the trailer listening to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, if you ever, I am dying to hear these playlists that you put together. So if you ever are ever motivated or ever want even help getting those together, let us know because that those would be. I'd love to have a curated Spotify playlist for all the major characters. That'd be a lot of fun. Well, that's a good idea, actually. I really didn't think about putting them out there. They were more for me to get in the mindset of the characters. Uh, but yeah, I mean, when we started season two, AMC did ask me to put a couple of playlists together for. Uh, the Lodge website that were on Spotify. And one was, you know, kind of a uh, Lodge jukebox. Uh, and one yep. was, uh, yeah, so there's that exists. And then the other one was just a bunch of songs named after all the characters. So each one was a different, you know, a song named after Dad and Liz and everything like that. I think there was a hundred in the end. Uh, so maybe let's fight for season three and I'll put together all the character playlists and they can go from the website then. Ah, love it. Yeah. Dangle, dangle the carrot. Um, <laughs> we've got a few minutes left with you, and I was curious. You know, you, it sounds like you've done work more in the UK. You said with documentaries and film, and some television, and now here in the US with Lodge Forty Nine. Were there certain music supervisors or or directors or even sounds that you were inspired by or liked from other television shows and movies? I mean, you know, every all the time I'm watching amazing shows that are that are doing wonderful things. I try not to be too influenced by what other people are up to, but you know, you can't beat Tarantino's soundtracks, for example. Uh, Thomas Globowitz is, you know, one of the most respected music supervisors out there. He's doing some some great work. He does Better Call Saul, and you know. Um, Breaking Bad. By the way, uh, another thing, uh, we season one of Lodge aired immediately before Better Call Saul. And we were all sound carriers, and the Better Call Saul theme tune, that little uh, guitar twang, is by the band Little Barry, who are a British band. And they were at school with the sound carriers. They were all best friends. And that was a complete coincidence. So it ended up two bands from the same high school in Nottingham, which is you know, a mid-sized town in Britain, ended up on AMC TV shows completely independently. And Little Barry and the Sound Carriers came together this summer in London in June, a couple of members of the Sound Carriers and Barry said, oh, Little Barry, to do this extended um, improvised show, which was absolutely amazing. So we brought those two things together. Well, uh, yeah, and fantastic. I always like that uh, beginning to uh, Better Call Saul, too. That's, that's, that's really crazy. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, we, we are in a golden age for music supervision on TV. I mean, I think it's very hard nowadays to turn on a TV show that doesn't have something fabulous on it. I mean, my friend Tiffany Anders, great work. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just hard. There's just so much. And it just surprises me that with 
such an amazing uh, array of shows out there that people have latched onto the music of Lodge 49 in any way at all. And that's hugely gratifying to me. Tom, I have to say, I mean, the show has got such a unique point of view musically. It was one of the things that, you know, when you, you start any show, you're like, what is this? And, you know, I've seen the promos doing Better Call Saul, et cetera. And it's just kind of like mildly curious and finally tuned in. Um, and for all the reasons, the show hooked me pretty quick. But I have to say that the music almost immediately kind of made me sit up on my my couch. And I'm I'm a nerd, so I'm always like, <laughs> you know, go, oh, good good song picked there by this, you know, yada yada. And I'll go and look up the names of the music supervisors every once in a while. So I, I really was like, is, am I really hearing this through my TV speakers? Like some you know band sounds that I never really expected to to hear on anything resembling TV. Well, that's, that's, uh, I really appreciate that. I mean, a lot of, a lot of thanks to, to Jim though. You know, Jim is no slouch when it comes to music. He's a former DJ himself. You know, we used to share mixtapes and, uh, a lot of choices come via him or we'll sit around and swap ideas. He'll strip something out that I placed in because it goes through many edits before you get to the final thing. And there's so much of a kind of like jigsaw puzzle. So he'll he'll take something out, move it elsewhere, or I'll go suggest something else. Oh, sorry, that's my phone going. Um, but yeah, he's uh, it's 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 just a wonderful show to work on, and I'm lucky that everyone there is also blessed with fabulous taste to allow me to bring lots of weird tracks that I think some other showrunners might go. Well, it's a bit too out there. Let's keep it a bit more safe. Maybe we'll ask you one quick question to leave on, since you mentioned this a few times, and it's very interesting. What was the one? What was the best thing Jim ever turned you on to through, through from one of his mixtapes to you? Uh, he uh, it was Wire, Twelve Times You, and I always knew Wire. I had a Wire album, and this is years ago. But we were like twenty one, probably, and it was the first one he sent. And uh, I remember he put uh, I can't remember what Wire track it was, but it was one of their non punk ones, and it was more sort of uh, pop, and it blew my mind. And, uh, you know, I'd only had the first Wire album, which is all spiky and aggressive. And I went out and searched that out. i tell you what, and I'll tell you a tune uh, that he also turned me on to, uh, or actually a band he turned me on to, is the David, who we use at the very end of season two, when uh, Dud digs. And he had that album, and he used to drive around with that album, and it was in his car forever. And I think he still drives the same car as he's had for the past 20 years, and it was always under the seat. And we were looking for a song for that final scene, and I, we'd had some ideas and tried bits and bobs. And I suggested, look, the David, one of your favorite bands, we've got to get the David in somewhere. And I suggested a different song. He went, no, we'll try Time M, and that went in. So that's another band he turned me on to. So they are Wyatt and the David. There you go. Tom, thank you so much. This is, you know, as, as both of us being kind of music heads and Lodge 49 fanatics, this is a real thrill to talk to you. Oh, hey, not a problem at all. And also, I have somebody else here you might want to say hello to quickly. Oh, okay. Um, so do you know, uh, you know Genevieve? Ah, sure. Oh, yeah. The, 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 the French muse. We do. Well, th well, that is actually my wife, Susie. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. And she sang for us in season one, the incredible version of Nature Boy that oh. I needed when, when Bert died. And she's a fabulous comic actor in her own right and performer and uh, she's like in Marin and loads of shows you know you name a British comedy show she's in it but she's done a bunch of American shows as well and when a uh, singing part was brought up 
Jim and Peter thought of Susie, especially after uh, season one. So if you want to say hello, she is around. We, we would love well, you. Let me pass you over here. Here, Susie, it's a couple of the fellas from the Lodge 49 podcast. Hello. Hello. Wow. Hi, what a, <laughs> it's a, it's the, uh, the deep bonus cut on the reissue here. <laughs> it's exciting to talk to you. So, yeah, is this the Lodge 49 world couldn't get any cosier? Um, <laughs> nice, to, nice to virtually hourly meet you guys. Hi. Well, thank you. How was it? What was it like to shoot that seminal season two version of uh, Dream the Impossible Dream? My God. Um, that was one of the last things we shot. So, by that stage, I'd been in Atlanta for quite a few weeks with the whole gang. So, you know, everything they say, a lot of the cast talk about it on Twitter and Facebook, and they, they talk about how warm and happy the, the, the production is and the cast, and it's completely true. Coming in to the second season, having watched the first, was, you know, pretty daunting. And it couldn't have been a more welcoming, lovely, happy space. It was kind of mind-blowing. So by the time we got to the song, which was obviously pretty nerve-wracking, you know, I knew that they were all they were all so supportive and rooting for me, and everyone was just having a really good time. We shot it in the Fox Theatre in Atlanta, which is this incredible old gossip place. Quite a few of the scenes in Guadalajara are from there, and you look it up if you can, because the interior is just endless with these huge kind of Egyptian-style rooms and secret chambers. It is extraordinary. Um, so part of that was just fun scampering around that building when we weren't filming. Um, and then Paul F. Tompkins, who I've admired for years and years and years, was the auctioneer. So we were the stage end for a lot of it, and the rest of the cast were down in the seat. So I just got to kind of hang out and chat with him, and he's delightful and very funny. So it was just a hoot, really. <laughs> well, he got me... I am always picking out from the week on the uh, podcast, and uh, so I picked you because I really thought you kind of stole the show in that uh, second last episode. Oh, that's well, that very sweet. There's so many set pieces in that one episode. It's sort of incredible. I mean, that great. Um, Jake, uh, the director, shot that amazing table scene with the camera rotating around us all. We only did that about three times. And he was like, yep, done. And then, of course, once <laughs> Ernie, spoilers, you know, takes advantage of what I've done. That whole sequence with that incredible sound carriers cover as well of, uh, uh, what is it called? The um, Seventh Seal. Um, and they're running up the stairs. And, the, and it's just sort of moment after moment after moment, that lovely bit of the pool. And it's just kind of one of those episodes you just kind of eat again and again, you know. So you're very sweet to say that, but I think it was a, I mean, proper ensemble episode that in so many ways. And of course, you know, Paul Giamatti kind of leading us all through the mania. What could be better? Tell us a little bit about how you got to, to embody the muse. <laughs> I got to embody the muse. Um, well, so, yeah, they got in touch because I'd sung this song in the first season. They thought of me and Jim. Jim knew some of my acting work. And also my parents live in France. And they were saying, well, you know, would you come do this? I was like, are you kidding me? Of <laughs> Um, but they were very hands-off. And like, as I said, to, I think I emailed Jim at one point. I said, well, look, before I come on to set, there's any way I could do these lines, you know, um, considering they're all in Ludivrium. Some, someone's put her in there, either herself or someone else. Um, do you have any thoughts? And all he said really was, 
Well, she's got to be some of what Lamar describes her as. So she's got to be something of an enigma. There's got to be something enigmatic about her and something sort of elegant about her. Otherwise, he just wouldn't, you know, happily show her off to everyone as his muse. Um, and that was really it. So I, I didn't want it to just be too silly or um, disingenuous. So I, I, I'd never spoken to Jim or Peter about this, but I decided to write an entire backplot of her <laughs> that would explain, first of all, the way I was saying the French, and secondly, the why she's there, why she's saying what she's saying. And I, I will never reveal it, of course, but there is a reason for it all in my head. So that I, I just wanted it to come from somewhere actually authentic, even though it wouldn't make any sense and no one would really know where that was. I didn't want it just to be a sort of comedy performance. Um, but but also physically, Peter, Peter Rocco came up to me once and said, I like how you make your bones collapse at the end of every sentence. <laughs> she sort of, she, I was like, oh yeah, it's kind of like when, she, when someone talks to her, when, when Lamar talks to her, she sort of activates for a little bit, but then the exhaustion of saying that line is a bit too much. And so she deactivates and slightly kind of crumples back into herself again and goes back into her, her little world that she's in. Um, but yeah, it was kind of a, what a gift of a part. I mean, really, you don't kind of, normally I play comedy mums, you know, <laughs> like suddenly, do you want to play a French pyromaniac um, muse? <laughs> yes, 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 I do. Thank you very much. <laughs> and then actually Carol is the costume designer um, and also the, the whole makeup team were just incredible. It wasn't what I thought she was going to look like at all. I thought she'd be quite a cliche sort of modern French stripy top, maybe, um, kind of clothing. And then this extraordinary outfit, you know, really, really ethereal, which, which totally helped. You go, oh. And then there's this crazy dark 60s style um, Sharon Tate makeup and hair that they, I mean, it was a whole shebang. So when you looked at yourself looking like that, it sort of, helped you go, oh, well, okay, this is quite extreme. <laughs> this is a thing. Um, so they did half the work for me, really. Well, yeah, doesn't he say um, she's French? That's the most elegant type of woman? <laughs> Something that I think. <laughs> That's one of my favorite. I love that there's a type of woman. Yes, of course. I know. I know. There's also in, in that, I think, in the second season, uh, they made him say to David Pasquese, uh, the Italians are a clownish people, which is yeah. so great considering they're both Italian. And it's just such a great line. <laughs> yeah. So silly. Well, where else, where else do we might see you coming up? Um, you know, right here, you're, so you sing, you act, and you're uh, in comedy. <laughs> Triple threat. A tri- triple threat? Oh, crikey, I don't know about that. Um, well, I just shot a pilot uh, in L.A. Uh, with the amazing Rob Hubel uh, and a great ensemble from uh, UCB. Uh, and uh, it was terrific. We actually got to work with Gaden Matarazzo from Stranger Things. Um, very cool uh, guest cast. So we're waiting to hear about that. If, if that goes, I'll obviously be clumping on about that on Twitter relentlessly as well. <laughs> um, we're all keeping our fingers crossed for Lodge going again. You know, it, there's so much love for that show amongst us and the crew and the whole design team. Um, and the fans have been brilliant as well. You can see how much love there is for it. You guys, you know, who've been supportive for so long. 
So I, I, we're all kind of holding our breath to see what will happen and hoping for the best. What else? Oh, I've got, I don't know. I've got a uh, Monster Hunters, the podcast. Very good comedy podcast coming up for Halloween. As I've done a couple of times, Monster Hunters, it's completely changed. Like uh, sort of Austin Powers meets Sherlock Holmes meets some Monster Hunters. I don't know. I'm, I'm not the professional picture for it. But um, <laughs> uh, otherwise, yeah, you know, back in London um, and looking forward to autumn rolling in. Well, this is, thank you for joining in. This is, uh, we didn't know we were getting a, a twofer, so we're <laughs> super excited to talk talk to you and hear about. Hear hey, about likewise. <laughs> really nice to talk to you guys uh, yeah and thanks so much for all the podcasts they're brilliant alright well, thank you so much we're, we're happy to I will pass you back over <laughs> okay bye guys bye alright bye Susie all hi right. guys so anyway I mean I know you didn't have any questions prepared for it but I thought you might like to just say hi quickly Oh, oh, that was wonderful. Was a great surprise. And, and I'll tell you one final thing about Susie as well. That Nature Boy, she recorded in a living room in sort of one take and it went in. So, you know, she's a, she is a talented, talented lady. He says that she's a triple threat. <laughs> all right, Tom. Well, thank you both. Um, and um, we're, we're, all, we're, we're, we're all waiting with bated breath and ready to kick up a bunch of internet dust if, if the unthinkable happens. Absolutely. I mean, we're not quite done with the music either. We've got, uh, we do have a digital soundtrack coming out very soon. Nice. Uh, with some, with yeah. some of the uh, previously unreleased tracks coming on it. And if enough people buy that, then we will hopefully get a vinyl release. And next Monday, I'm also doing a radio show here in London on Soho Radio, where I'll be playing a bunch of the songs from the show, including some score and some rarities and maybe a couple of guests from the lodge. So if anyone's around next Monday between 4 and 6 p.m. London time, tune into Soho Radio. Well, if you could, uh, Twitter DM us or something and get us any links or details, and we will put those, uh, we'll put stuff in the show notes. Fabulous. No, I'll get all that information to you. Thank you, Tom. Hey, Thank guys. You so nice to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks for your love for the show. There was a boy, a very strange enchanted boy. They say he wandered very far, very far over land and sea. A little shy and sad of eye, but very wise was he. Magic day he passed my way And though we spoke of many things Fools and kings This he said to me The greatest thing you'll ever learn Is just to love and be 